Hello everyone and thank you for joining us this week on High Up The Pitch. Today on the show, we are going to talk about Arsenal showing a lot of guts at the Emirates against Liverpool and we discuss whether there's a revival going on in that part of North London. Leicester winning an emotional game after the death of their chairman and we'll also look at Thierry Henry's difficult first few games as a manager as well as a lot of other talking points from across the world of football in the last one week. To discuss this with me, I have Shola here once again with us. Cheers, guys! And uh, let's just let's just get let's just get right to it. Uh, maybe we should start first at the Vitality Stadium, where Bournemouth did look like they were going to give United a very very difficult game with the with the way they started the game, especially uh, in the in the first half. Uh, Mourinho said after the game that. He was one of the luckiest managers in the Premier League. I don't know whether Shala agrees with him. Well, uh, earlier in the game, Bournemouth created a couple of chances. Uh, not clear-cut chances either, but uh, good enough chances that they could hope to score a couple. They got one, but as soon as Manchester United got back into the game, uh, they started growing into the game gradually started creating chances and they could and probably should have won by even more than one goal difference mm. well I, I i watched that game the whole the whole way through and i saw that before before bomo to delete through Callum wilson wilson himself put through fraser one-on-one uh the hair saved that with his legs then uh, Wilson himself had an opportunity in the box, I think off a corner or something, that De Gea also saved before, before receiving a cutback from, from someone I believe was Junior Stanislas or something to open the scoring. That's in, and this all happened in the first 10 minutes. You know, all these, all these attempts could have easily been goals. But, you know, somehow United stayed in the game long enough. And it seemed like um, Moreno made a double change. He, uh, around the hour mark when he brought on Herrera and I think Rashford as well. And I think that after that, they, they, they kind of got a, a real hold, a, a real hold in midfield. And then, you know, Bournemouth couldn't really do, Bournemouth really couldn't do um, a lot. Rashford came on and then, you know, he scored a 90th minute winner. I don't know if anybody remembers, uh, this is this something similar against Hall last, no, it wasn't Hall last season. It was Hall, uh, I think this was the first season where he tapped he, he tapped the ball in on 90 minutes. I think he has scored 90 minute winners twice. I think his level with Paul scores. Or, I, I thought I saw a similar start like that. But I don't know if... Um, and that's a bit of a downer for Bournemouth, by the way, because they had been doing well uh, of, of recent, you know, and there has been talk again of Eddie Howe, you know, being looked at for, for higher for a higher calling, as it were. Definitely, mm-hmm. as it should be, actually. I've, at the start of the season, if you look at the squad rosters of a lot of Premier League teams, you were pretty sure they had, if not the weakest, one of the weakest group of players in the entire league. To be where they are on the table and on the kind of run that they've had so far this season, Eddie Howe has done amazing. I... I've never really been a huge, huge fan, but this season definitely, definitely going to be rooting for them 
till the end of this season. You know, it seems very interesting because that's their squad is a lot of them are made up of people that they came up with from the championship. Even this new lad that came has been scoring a couple of goals for them, David Brooks or something. I think that's his name. Came from Sheffield Wednesday. Yeah. So it seems like they are developing this this good scouting network from you know in the lower leagues, and they seem to be looking at primarily English players. Uh, people like Louis Cook, for example, came from came from lower leagues, and a couple and a couple of other people as well. You know, so it's like they 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 have a different strategy to their own recruitment. That's well, not like you know getting either you know big money foreigners from you know from the more established leagues and paying them a lot of money, or looking at places like Germany or Portugal only for bargains. They seem to be reaching down more into the lower the lower levels of the of the of the English leagues, you know, to get you know what what looks like pretty pretty decent talent. I I, I think so. That's an interesting strategy to look at. Um, after that, you know, we, we we let's go to the Emirates. You know, a lot of Arsenal's run. Um, so far, you know, they've after they lost the first two games. I think they, I think they went 11, 11 wins. Yeah, eleven wins, uh, and then before their draw against Palace uh, last week, so many people had written off. Well, some people had written off the run, you know, saying that you know it was against you know beatable opposition, and even Paul Messon, you know, former Arsenal player, had come come out to say, well, they thought that um, <laughs> Liverpool were going to tear Arsenal to shreds. Well, uh, clearly that didn't happen. So I don't know what Chola, what, what your uh, views are on that. It was a very strange one for me, seeing a lot of pundits predict Liverpool was going to win. As much as I think Liverpool is an outstanding team, I feel like too many people are quick to want to be on the negative side as Arsenal. And it clouds their judgment a bit. I mean, the game is at the Emirates Stadium. You have to give Arsenal benefit of the doubt especially given their recent run uh i remember the game against watford that we discussed here as well and i said that um, some of the behaviors that the coach wanted the players to do not only were they doing it but they were starting to do them at the required speed so at that point i felt okay yes this is something this is something positive for the team. And yesterday, for me, poof, they were outstanding. They were very, very good. Liverpool came with their own strategy, also a very sound strategy. They didn't try to compete for the ball with Arsenal, try to mainly look at counter-attacks. But I think Arsenal dealt with most of their threats decently enough. And they created a lot of problems for... Liverpool's back line. I think Robertson was fantastic. Van Dijk was fantastic. Gomez was excellent as well. So, in that kind of match, which for me is probably my best game this season in the PL, the quality of both teams was exceptionally high. Credit to Arsenal. After conceding, dog backing, got the goal back, and still tried pushing trying to see if they could get a win. I think the coach has done excellent. His attitude is fantastic. His mentality on the touchline yesterday kept on driving the players, even at one nil down. Oof. It's hungry to impress, and I think that bodes well for Arsenal. 
Indeed, uh, yesterday was actually Unaimi's birthday, so I, I I think that that performance is a, is a really really good birthday gift for us now. Uh, let's let's even look at the goal, uh, Liverpool's goal in particular. I I I don't I don't know what you think, but I think that Leno could have done better with that ball because it wasn't quite a punch and it wasn't a catch. It's one of those things where he kind of sticks his hands out and he doesn't really do anything decisive and it's set up in a way where Milner can come and lash it. I'm I'm not sure I'm not sure what you think about if we could have done anything more in that position. Yeah, I I I agree. I think he could have done something more. But the thing is Liverpool go home and they are going to be very happy with that goal. Why? Because it's a goal that they prepared for. Mm. Not specifically that action, but if you look at the points when Mane crosses the ball, there's nobody in the box that's a Liverpool player. Absolutely that's nobody. That's true. But it's something they is an idea club uses over and over and over again. If he's playing a very strong team, the usual situation in that for most teams is okay, nobody in the box, Mane keeps the ball. But usually, because he doesn't want Liverpool to be susceptible to the counter-attack, he would rather lose possession there okay. because his teammates are running forward and then they see if they can press and win it back yes, yes, to get yes, something yes. immediately. Rather than them turning back, going a bit more open, trying to retain, and then lose the ball where they are more open to counter-attack. So, Liverpool will look at the goal and... Club will be delighted. Well, this is what we are looking for. If we can put this kind of balls in, just create some chaos and confusion and try to reap the benefits of it, good. But as for Leno, it's hard because the cross wasn't too close to him as well. Should he have left it? I feel he wouldn't have seen his back. So, unless someone communicates with him to leave it, that there's no danger mm-hmm. if he lets it go. Which in that case, maybe one of the defensive midfielders with a bigger view of the situation. Doesn't believe it. Exactly. But mm. slight margins, not the most easy to accomplish. Mm. Indeed. Uh, how, how about how about Lacazette's like, goal though? Um Alison came out trying to trying to narrow the angle. And he kind of did that, but you know, not enough. Because it seemed like Lacazette like, got the ball, the only place that was possible. There was Gomez partially blocking his his view as well. Alisson, the same thing. And he just put the ball the only place that I thought he could have scored. Because I thought that the chance had gone already. You know, and he had to reorientate himself. He had to turn, he had to know where the post was. And I think that was a really, really good finish from, from the from the Frenchman. A lot of people have been giving Alisson stick, and a lot of people are thinking it's a highlight, a blunder. For me, that's excellent goalkeeping. I mean, if he didn't step out to close the angle, like you said, Akazet is going to be one-on-one and he's going to finish the action most likely. He steps out, closes the angle, forces Lacazette to dribble him, take the ball away from the goal mount, makes himself big. And like you have also said, Lacazette finds the slightest, tiniest angle to put it. I think it's excellent goalkeeping. He was beaten. By an excellent striker, it's that simple. Mm, mm. Uh, Liverpool, Liverpool still unbeaten, uh, and and are currently joints are uh, currently second in second spot, uh, 
with uh, Manchester City, who have just won, by the way, uh, 6-1. <laughs> Believe it or not, this is their fourth game. So they've played, I think they've played 12 games this season. This is their fourth game with a margin that they've won this season with a margin of five goals <laughs> or more. Um, you know, the tendency is to run out of, you know, superlatives for, for, for a team like this. Um, again, you have now today, the story is already all about Aguero and Sterling. Uh, Sterling two goals to assist, Aguero, uh, a goal and two assists. So between them, they have 13 goals and nine assists this season. 13 goals and nine assists between them. Uh, Sterling has six and five. That's six goals and five assists. And, you know, Aguero is also the ninth player to reach 150 goals for Manchester City. It's it's difficult to know how, you know, how to stop them. Because even at the back, it seems like they've gotten better as well. Yeah, I, from an outside point of view, I will personally feel they've spent a lot of time working on their defending this season. Since they are more concerned about not conceding too many goals, since they already know they can score goals. If you look at the Liverpool game, it's probably the first time in a long while that they've played a bit conservative. They try to close a lot of spaces, even when they have the ball. So they don't give Liverpool too much space to make mm-hmm. counter-attack. So, I think they are a bit more conservative this season. They are still scoring goals as well, but it's where it gets interesting for me. I think they've been excellent, and yet the distance between first and second is still just still very small. two points. Two points. So Chelsea and Liverpool are saying we are going to hunt this title very well till the end. So, I don't think Man City can rest on their oars <laughs> every win next week they have to get another three points next two weeks they have to get another three points if not Saris Chelsea clubs Liverpool right behind, right, them, right behind them waiting yeah. for any slip-ups mm-hmm. uh, Newcastle got a win uh, finally hallelujah they got a win <laughs> a surprising win because you know what for teams have picked up picked up their winning mojo again uh, but they won 1-0 at at, at home, uh, Ayose Perez with a, with a bullet header, really, because he just kind of redirected the ball from one of those free kicks uh, against against Watford. So they have precious, precious points with uh, with a genuine relegation six-pointer coming up tomorrow. Uh, Fulham versus Huddersfield. You know, uh, they could actually be off the table, off the bottom of the table by the time um, and after the relegation zone, mind you, uh, depending on how that that game goes um it's been an emotional several days for leicester city um they lost they lost their chairman the one who made a five thousand to one you know odds of uh, winning the title possible in uh vishai shivadan apraba lost his life and the, the whole football world came together to to mourn him and um and offer tributes they had postponed their EFL Cup game, uh, but they but the show went on in the league when they went to Cardiff City. Uh, they they won that game one zero. Um, they married Gray, you know, with the, with the goal, and of course, 
he took off his shirt to um to 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 pay tribute to to their to their former chairman. I'm not sure. Well, I'm again. I'm still baffled whenever I see Wes Morgan in the Leicester City lineup. You know, but although things didn't things weren't too bad yesterday, you know they kept a clean sheet, by the way. Uh, but he ha- he already has two red cards this season, and um, I I don't know. It's it's well, whenever it seems like his time in the starting lineup is supposed to be up, he always just seems to. You know, come back and come back and come back. Anyway, um, that's 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 over there. Everton beat Brighton three one. Richarlison back amongst the goals again. He has already scored more goals now than he scored the whole of last season. When he came into the spotlight, that's six goals in the season now, and it seems like Everton are having some stability, a bit of stability under under Marco Silva there. Spurs won three two at against against Wolves. Um, they look like they had won the game. I mean, when by the time Kane scored at the hour mark, look like that won the game. But somehow, you know, Juan Foyth in particular, you know, has himself to blame for giving away two penalties from which uh, Neves and Raul Jimenez put put the ball away to give like a very nervous finish. And now Spurs um, are still doing pretty well in the league. Yeah, you silently. Know. Silently, you yeah. know, and it's and it's an interesting one for Spurs because. You know his his comments, uh, professional's comments about him being the him having the the least uh, what's the word now his, his his least favorite time you know since since becoming sports boss um, is contrasting with their current position. So they are back in fourth place now because of Arsenal's draw. They are back in fourth place now, and um, you know with any luck they could actually still return to the UCL. Um, next season, it's very very tight because if it if as it looks, you know, like City, Liverpool, and, and Chelsea occupy the first three three spots. Uh, essentially, there's only one spot left up for grabs, unless maybe Arsenal win the Europa League, and then in which case, you know, their league position will not matter too much. West Ham also beat Burnley four two. Burnley have conceded thirteen goals. In the last three games or something, yeah. you know, this is a team that for a long time has been, you know, associated with you know defensive solidity, able to prevent, you know, themselves from being breached. But it looks like all of that is beginning to fray at the edges. Uh, another four goals considered. Anatovic was not available last week; he had a stomach bug or something, and then they they drew against Leicester. But now he's back, and West Ham are back amongst the points. Okay, um, I don't know if before we move on from this EPL, I don't know if Shola has any other things he wants to he wants to point out from last week from this week. Uh, easy movement on the table, but very happy for Spurs. A lot was made about how they couldn't, how they did not sign players in the last window. Although they already have a very 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 good squad, that has to be said and. Pochettino is one of those guys that is doing his job silently away from the spotlight and they are getting points on the table. I personally still predict them finishing in the top four. I believe they will get it. And you mentioned Leicester, important away victory for them. 
must be a tough time for them. Our man here Nacho couldn't get time on the pitch. Yeah. Still, I am not completely a bad season for him. I think he has registered a couple goals, a couple assists. And he's doing well, so <laughs> that's good for the super. That's true. He got the he got the equalizer uh last week. Yeah, a bit of a deflection there, but yeah, still is good actually. Still, still, uh, still very much is good. Okay then. Um let's just quickly touch a couple of other leagues. Uh Dortmund continue their leadership of the Bundesliga with one with a one new win against Wolfsburg. Uh the the goal scored there by Marco Royce. Um and because of Bayern's Bayern's two points dropped against Freiburg, who are who are currently battling relegation. Uh there is um there's a four point lead for Dortmund over there. In France, PSG have made have made history by winning their first 12 games in a row and an all-time record in the top five top five leagues. So nobody has ever won 12 wins. 12 has ever started the season with 12 wins. Um, I'm noticing a shift in PSG this 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 in the last couple of weeks. Uh Tuchel seems seems fixated on 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 employing a 3-5-2 with uh Neymar and Mbappe as the two. Cavani was not even on the bench yesterday. I think he's just returning from injury. And even though yeah but there's even been a lot of talk about him not having the best time right now um at the at the club. Um and and also the fact that you know Tuchel wants to move to is is really experimenting with with uh, with the 3-5-2 means that you know, there'll only be space for two attackers. And the and the way Neymar and Mbappe um the way they the way they dovetail, you know, to the exclusion of Cavani, even when he's on the field, means that really if you're gonna do a three five two then the person who's gonna drop out of that um is, is obvious. Um the Nicolas Pepe, who has already been doing really well for Lille as well, pulled the goal back for them late on. Um, everybody has also been watching the the uh, the coaching career of um, Thierry Henry that hasn't been gone <laughs> in the best way. Uh, newly promoted Rim beat them one zero at home. That is at the at the home of Rim, and this is the worst performance. This is worst out of for Monaco since 1953 1954 season. So it's a record breaking bad loss. Uh, they could be bottom of the table by the end of this round of games. And um, I think that, I think that Monaco made a mistake. Maybe not by letting Jardim go, but, but by appointing Henri. Uh, he went, after the game, he thought, he thought about how, you know, the Monaco players are not playing the way he wants, and so on and so forth. And it's only taking a few games for him to begin to, to chastise his players. I'm not sure how how effective that's going to be going forward. But I did think that it was a difficult one because Monaco is essentially a rebuilding job. The I mean the the, the team that they've won, that they won the league with two seasons ago is is basically is, is more or less gone. They've got a lot of young players, you know, don't have any I don't have much by way of experience or even consistency in their performances. And so, you know, he's having to be basically rebuild from scratch. And um for a first time, a manager in his first in the, in the first time, you know, and in his um, in his in his position, I always knew it was going to be very difficult for him. But you know, it may it may be even more difficult than that. 
Um, Moreover, although differently, I don't I don't know if this contrasts. This does, this doesn't really contrast well with um, his former teammate Patrick Vieira's niece. Niece beat Amion one zero yesterday, yesterday as well, and they are up to ninth. You know, uh, Vieira has had time with New York City FC, part of the Manchester City collection of clubs around the world, and he has had a lot of experience there. That is even basically passing his ideas across. You know, so maybe that has served him served him well in this particular job. They have back to back wins now, so you know who knows where they could end up. Shada. Um, as for Henry, uh, it took the Monaco job, and I asked myself, is that brave or stupid? Mm. Because it's the team wasn't doing very well. I don't watch too much of the French league, but. After I started seeing Monaco racking up losses and losses, I decided to see a couple of stuff and just watching the team play, their play was incredibly broken. Very, very broken play. I knew ah, this is a team that is in huge trouble. And the starting point for me is not just this season. The starting point is their entire transfer model and how they want to run the club. And I've looked at a couple of other teams with similar ideas and they usually, at some point, go through exactly what Monaco is going through. Mm. And I've been asking myself, why does this happen? Why does this happen? And I found that um, if you have a team and your transfer model is centered around developing young players and selling them for big money and replacing them with young talent, at some point, you are going to sell the core of the team. Like, if I refer to them as the soul of the team. And the moment you sell those guys, there's nobody that transmits the team culture to new guys coming in. There's nobody that is enforcing discipline or challenging their teammates. There's examples of guys like Kale Ancelotti. He talks a lot about how guys like Terry, Lampard, and Drogba and Czech, how these guys are the standard bearers at Chelsea when he was there. They set the standard. They were the most hardworking players. Mm. So if you are a new player coming into the team and you look at the biggest players in the team and they are working harder than everybody else, you don't have an option. You have to give it a hundred percent. It's the same at Manchester United. Fergie had guys like Vidic, like Ferdinand, like Giggs, mm. like Carrick, and these guys like Rooney. And these guys are the ones setting the culture, they're the ones setting the standard. Every other person has to fall in line. But when you lose those guys, mm. who then sets the standard for behavior for the others? Who sets the culture? Nobody except the manager. But the manager cannot do it alone. You need he players that understand this is what it yeah. means to represent this club. Yeah. And that live that day in, day out. So I found that teams that always have that mentality to buy young, talented guys and sell them off, at some point when they sell too many, they lose that. They lose players that mm. can explain or show or lead by example to others and say, this is what it means to play for Monaco. Mm. I think that's the situation that the club is in now. So now, if they are going to get it right, they need a long period of healing the team and basically doing a lot of work around building a new team culture. Mm. 
And then from there, maybe they can start getting guys that are pushing themselves, working hard together. Then tactics can start to work. But you don't teach a broken squad tactics. Nothing is going to, to nothing is going to translate. Then you have what Henry's basically saying. They are not playing how I want them to play. Why? Because the squad is broken. Hmm. Hmm. Um, so that will take a lot of time and we'll be watching this particular situation with interest. Over in Spain, uh, Madrid needed late, late goals to be via the lead. Um, there's been a lot of interesting things about Madrid recently. They've been looking for a coach to replace um, Lopetegui after they went down 5-1 to Barcelona at Camp Nou. Now, it's been interesting because Conte, it was rumored that things were going to be signed you know, with Antonio Conte, but it seemed like at the last minute, you know, whatever it was, was called off. Who precisely initiated the, the issue, the, the calling off of the of the contract is uh, is another matter entirely. Some people were saying, some people are saying that is the the senior players were consulted and they weren't taking with the idea. And you know, Conte as well was neither here nor there himself. Um, I have been doing some, I've been doing some looking into Madrid and Madrid's history with coaches, and it seems like. Their model is based entirely around player power. So it's not even a recent thing. It's not a Perez thing. Something that goes back to, 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 Santiago, to Santiago Bernabeu, who, when he brought in Di Stefano, Di Stefano was basically one of the most powerful voices at the club. They run a lot of, you know, run a lot of issues around the club, on the club. A lot of decisions of the club passed through him. And, and had to get his buy-in almost before anybody else. So we want to do A, you ask him, oh, is it okay with you? You say, yeah, sure, sure, it's okay. And then, you know, and has to get in um, his, his, um, his, his say in choice of coaches. But m- most tellingly, most tellingly, some of the longest-serving Madrid coaches have been former Madrid players. Miguel Munoz, for example, uh, who coached them from 1960 to 1974, was a former, had played for Madrid for the previous 10 years. That's ending in 1958. Uh, Zidane, who also spent over three years there as well, I believe. Uh, and by virtue of that being, you know, one of the longest seven Madrid coaches, is of course, as we know, a former Madrid Galactico as well. Now, they have uh, Santiago Solari in place. And... I'm asking myself, shouldn't they just continue with Solari and then begin to look for, you know, other Madrid players who don't mind forward players who can who can who can come in and coach the team, you know, while they rebuild? Uh, because you have you have someone like Ramos saying after the after the Barcelona match that, you know, that managing the the team is the most important thing. And not and not before tactical knowledge, before technical knowledge and so on and so forth. And so I'm asking myself, why why do Madrid bother? Why do they bother with people like Del Bosque and Capello and other people? Why why not just have former players coach the team then? So that everybody, since they understand the culture, how the club works, everybody can just carry on because Madrid's culture is very unique in this area. In that, in other clubs, not like they don't have player power. The player power seems to rise and fall with time. But this player power seems to me completely constant over the last six decades or so. 
is this ever going to change? And if it's not going to change, what's the point of any big name manager going to coach them if he has his own strong ideas about how the game should be played? Why should he bother? Why not just let them carry on with it? As in, Madrid, for me, is the ultimate family affair in world football. Is <laughs> <laughs> the ultimate family affair. I, 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 don't, I don't know what your... I don't know what... I should have thought on this my mini rant. Well, because um, I've been really interested in this phenomenon. Madrid is a very interesting club. And in the days I used to be a football club supporter, I used to be a Madrid fan. And out of anger and hatred, I left Madrid and decided not to support any club again. Why? Why did you support Madrid though? Ah, because I felt like they were running the club like shit. I didn't like how things were going. It wasn't for me anymore. And I found that, okay, as for me personally, if I wanted to analyze football with the objectivity that my job requires, then maybe I had to remove any form of bias or sentiment mm. in how I view the game. So it was a two-way win-win for me. But on the player power and manager and old players coming through, um, it's a combination of, or how will I say, um, coaching a team well, it's a combination of competencies in different areas. The coach has to be tactically competent. He has to be socially competent as mm-hmm. well. He has yeah. to know how to deal with and interact with the group. Yes. Which if um, recent statements by Ramos and also Tony Cruz also tweeted something like a slight dig against um, Lopetegui saying, um, tweeting that um, Madrid won a league game last night, something like that. So I feel like, okay, maybe Lopetegui didn't exactly win the dressing room over. And as a result, players simply did not give their best. But if you are going to always employ former Madridistas, it's not going to be an easy policy. Why? You can get guys that would win the dressing room and the players want to play for the guy, but the guy just doesn't have the tactical competence to lead the team. So you need a bit of everything. You need the social competence. You also need to be tactically competent. And also, there's also the aspect of how tactically competent the coach is. Mm-hmm. For instance, um, players are not idiots in the sense that if a coach comes in, even if he doesn't exactly win the dressing room, if the player sense that this guy is operating and is working at a phenomenal level, that this team is going to be successful, Okay, they're likely to buy in. They are going to buy in automatically. Mm. Mm. Because they don't want a situation where other players buy in. And they don't. And they, because they are not giving their all, they end up on the bench and the team succeeds. Mm -hmm. So sometimes if the manager is starting with exceptional work, people automatically buy into what the manager Mm. is doing. Mm. So Mm. it's not just the social competence part, which I think Lopetejo has failed at. But as for now, I think, like you suggested, it's wise for them to leave Solari there, even just for a bit, watch and see and try to identify the exact problems with the team. Yeah, address those first. Yes. 
there's different problems from the outside. Okay. The question now is which is the most important, important one. Some yes, people yes. feel like Ronaldo wasn't replaced. Mm-hmm. Definitely, that's a problem. If yes. you lose a player of Ronaldo's quality and you don't sign any new big hitter, there's a problem. But is somewhere. that the most important problem? Is that the most important problem? Maybe, ah, but maybe not. Then we now ask, is the most important problem the manager not motivating the players enough? Okay, why don't we see someone else there? And let's see what he does. Let's see how the players yeah. respond to him. Yeah. And let's see how much their form improves or not. So then if they leave him there for a while, it's easier to now say, oh, this is the problem. Replacing Ronaldo is the biggest problem. Mm-hmm. Or the biggest problem was the manager not mm-hmm. getting along well mm-hmm. with the players. And then it helps them make their next decision better. Mm. Rather than rushing into making the decision now, there's no point employing... Um, a Conte or some rumors are saying Lord drop as well. And then he comes in and the biggest problem is still not the manager. It's still the fact that Ronaldo is not in the team. You know, interestingly, uh, speaking about Lord drop, he actually turned down the job outright. And he basically said, well, because of the way the club is run, that he doesn't think that he's going to be be okay with it, be too successful with it. So that's why he actually turned the job down <laughs> in this case. Very interesting stuff. Um, elsewhere, wherever I can know, where leading Barcelona, they, were, they seemed to be on the verge of winning before they got the, the, the considered twice late on uh, to lose 3 2. So the Kules now have their, third winning, won, have their third winning in a row without Lionel Messi. So maybe not that bad after all, eh? Suarez is stepping up. Big Suarez time. is stepping up big time. Absolutely correct. Uh, he's really filling that void. He was fantastic. Against Real Madrid, especially in the second half, with uh, one, two, three goals there as well. I think he scored twice yesterday as well. So he <laughs> he is clearly coming into his own. Uh, Atletico Madrid drew. They also considered a late goal uh, to draw the game. Uh, Griezmann's free kick was fantastic, by the way. <laughs> really good stuff. Uh, but you know, somehow at times it seems like Atletico are going to move. They are going to you know march forward with their uh, conviction and then they concede the odd goal they drop because they simply don't seem to be able to score more than one goal most times two goals most times um diego Simeone yeah. is one of my favorite three managers in the world and who are the other two uh pep guardiola and um marcelo bielsa mm. so and i feel like you can play the underdog card for a while, but at some point it starts to get old. Mm, mm. It's like the situation of Stoke City. Uh, Tony Pulis did amazing. But after a while, you can see the fans, the board, the entire atmosphere starts to demand for, okay, yes, we are surviving and that's good. But can we at least try to do something more aesthetically pleasing, something more protagonist? Mm-hmm. So I feel like Atletico are moving closer and closer to that point where maybe they need to become more protagonist in their approach. They need to become a lot more forceful going forward. Proactive. Yes, more proactive. They have some of the players for it. So... I don't think their squad is very far away from one that can actually play effective, proactive football if they choose to. You have one of the best attackers in the world in Griezmann. 
They've signed Rodri, who is amazing in midfield. They have Saul and Koke. Brilliant players. Um, Oblak, one of the best goalkeepers in the world. They have Indeed. Felipe Luis. So, I think maybe with one or two key signings and a lot more aggressive attacking approach, I feel it will breathe in a fresh air into the club. Mm. And the players will be able to ride on that wave and really, really explode. Mm. I would like to see them try something like that. Mm. And then see how well it goes and then adapt. But for now, I think maybe the defending, counter-attacking approach is getting is getting stale. I mean, people see them as the third biggest club in Spain. Is no longer really a two-man league. It's more like a two-three-quarter-man league now. Yeah, Atletico yeah, yeah. is not like that three-quarter. Yeah. They are still approaching matches like the rest teams probably want to. But I think it's time for them to take that step. That forward. next step. Yes. Okay, good stuff. Uh, over to Italy, where uh, Napoli, Inter, Juve... And Lazio all won their games, uh, beating the uh, guys in the mid mid table and relegation strugglers. Napoli beat Empoli five one, hat trick there for Dries Mertens. One of them was a was a great goal, looping over the keeper from just outside the box. Uh, he and Inter Milan also look like they are beginning to generate some momentum. I think they've won now. I think this is their sixth win in a row or seventh win in a row in the league after not doing well at all in their first three games. And in particular, Joao Mario um, seems to be seems to be coming good. Uh, a goal and two assists against Genoa yesterday. Uh, UVB Cagliari 3-1. Uh, and um, so that's the perfect preparation for Juventus to welcome United to the, to the J Stadium. And Lazio are just about there keeping up with every with the people competing with the, for the top four with a four-one victory against Spa as well. Um, but I want us to talk quickly about a few things that have come up from what from news that has made that has made the rounds in the last seventy-two hours or so about football leagues. Uh, now. So, two main things. One, a Super League that seems to be imminent a, with, I mean, with the documents released indicating that they want the Super League to begin in 2021-22 with uh, Bayern Munich and its, uh, and its people like uh, Rummenigge at the forefront of such a league. Uh, and also, FFP violations involving Manchester City and PSG, who have been, who have been let off essentially, you know, despite their owners, who are the who are who are the who are the who are the Middle Eastern uh, oil oil kings, basically violating FFP regulations to inject cash into those clubs, so that they can, so that they can um, be able to surmount FFP regulations as well. Now there is one thing I wanted to. I wanted to discuss here, Shola. Um, part of the documents, uh, you know, released for this, in the, the, in, released by Football Leagues, indicate that Bayern Munich were even going as far as considering their options for removing 
their players from international duty. They're considering their legal options, you know, to do so, to have them concentrate on a super league that would involve, you know, themselves, United, Real Madrid, AC Milan, you know, a number of other clubs as well. And I find this interesting because at the same time, we heard news this week that even though a 48 team World Cup was going to kick off in 2026, that in fact Gianni Infantino, you know, maybe even thinking about bringing it forward to 2022, you know, in Qatar. Now, what I'm asking is people who are against the 48 team league say that the reason why they are against it is because of a potential drop in quality. And this is true. This is true. Uh, uh, in that you will have many more games against weaker teams and many more dead robbers, right? And people who are in support of an expanded World Cup will say, well, it should be, you know, you should have the, the world thing, you know, the world in form of the cup, right? Have more people involved, more countries, you know, have it more like a festival and everything. But now I'm asking myself, these two things seem to be happening at the same time and they seem to be connected in that an expanded World Cup is likely to mean a reduction in, in the quality, on the average quality of games you are going to see. Now, a drop in that average quality will mean that international football loses some of this, in my view at least. I don't know what you think about this. I'm just posting this to you. Now, a bigger World Cup means lower average quality of matches, average quality, especially in the initial stages. Now, would that then make this Super League more attractive? And are those two, are those two things linked? That is, as you want to make something that will bring in you know, more viewers, more interest globally, and all of that, more teams having their first World Cups. And then this new elitist mentality seems to be growing instead of reducing. You know, so I wonder if both are connected. So it's, so it's just really a very meta kind of, you know, top point that I was having yesterday when I was, when I was out, when I was out running, I was thinking that these things may be connected because if people look at international, and if some people like Rumeniga, you know, who are more elitist in their own outlook, view international football as more watered down, then exploring legal options to take play their players out of international duty seems like the rational thing to do. While they focus on this huge money spinner called the, called the European Super League. Hmm. It's, for me, it's probably the part of football I do not like. Uh, I know, the politics, like politics of it all is <laughs> Man City, PSG, with their money and FFP issues, and then Bayern Munich trying to form something of a super league with other European giants. Also, close to a time where FIFA is discussing expanding the FIFA Club World Cup. That's true. There's also and that as well. That's they are true. getting some friction from UEFA. That's true. Who feel like it's going to affect their own tournaments and their own competitions as so well. So let me also add, UEFA are also looking at ex adding a third European competition that is going back 
to the coconut scrub that we used to have that yeah. ended in 1999, yeah? yeah, bringing back a third European competition that's going to kick off in 2021 or so that hasn't passed yet, but it's still it's heavily rumored to be able to do so. FIFA is also looking to copy the idea of the European Nations League and do something a bit similar to that. And has been a lot of recent stuff, but at the end of it all, if you read through, it's clear one thing all these guys are thinking about is money, 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 money. The idea of FIFA is because they have a couple of guys on board that want to sponsor a couple of tournaments and they are promising huge amounts of money, $25 billion. And some people are kicking against it because they feel Infantino is not completely transparent with where these monies are coming from. And where they will go to, mind Where you. they will go to. <laughs> who is sponsoring, they don't know, but Precisely. they are meant to agree to a tournament. And then UFA also having its own issues with FFP and so on. It's, it's quite sad that two, there's been is money coming into football is both good and bad. It's good in the sense that certain things improve, qualities improve, teams are building world-class facilities and the likes, standard academies are blossoming around the world. But the disadvantage is this, where there's a lot of money, people start to get greedy, people stop doing things that are best for the sport, and people try to start looking for how they can line their pockets. So, um, for me, at the end of the day, these same guys, they got to where they are because they are some of the most brilliant minds in football. If they truly want the best for football, they will sit down, get to compromises that work best for everyone. For instance, you say you want to play a Super League in Europe with the big boys. Fine. If UEFA now says you want to organize this, no problem. But out of the revenue that comes into this tournament, you are legally forced to split your profit 50% with the rest of the leagues in Europe. You see like a lot of these teams that want to they'll be like, okay, don't worry, don't worry, let's stay, <laughs> let's yeah. stay where we are. Yeah. So at the end of the day, we need to do what is best for football. And that is what is best for the entirety of football, not just the big boys, not just UEFA, not just FIFA, but the entirety of football. Hmm. Uh on that note, uh let's just move quickly to uh UCL games coming up. On match day coming up midweek. On Tuesday, you are gonna have the return legs international inter inter versus Barcelona. Uh Atletico <laughs> Atletico want to try to um, want to try to banish the the ghost of that four-nil from Dortmund about two two weeks ago. And PSG have another opportunity to beat uh, so Napoli have another opportunity to beat PSG. Now um PSG in particular seem to be in a precarious situation. in a relatively precarious situation because if they did lose if they did lose they have a very real possibility of entering the Europa League because Liverpool are likely to beat uh Red Star Belgrade at Anfield I believe 
you know so if they if they do that you know PSG will be in real trouble and um, it seems to me that even if that they have to go to the San Paulo and they need to look for how to win yeah. you know um, um, that's the way it looks like to me uh, Atletico as well look like they're going to qualify eventually you know but maybe they want to reclaim some pride you know by getting one over Dortmund and Inter Milan I don't know whether the San Siro atmosphere will be will be sufficient to, to get them to, to help them beat Barcelona although Messi could, could have could, could return for that game you know, he was rumored to even be ready for that. He was, sorry, he was rumored to be back in training already. You know, but yeah. he didn't feature at all against Rayo Vallecano. Um, also on Wednesday, Juve welcome United as well. And I don't know, you know, if United have it in them, you know, to salvage some pride of their own as well. It does look like they will qualify irrespective um, of the of the results in Italy. But it seems to me that the club with the highest wage bill in Europe has something to prove, you know, um, in Italy. To prove that they can compete, you know, uh, a team with their resources should be able to at least put 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 something together that will that will be a a performance that will be a credit to them. So, um, on that note, we are, I've kind of gone through my talking points. So, I don't know if you have anything to, to talk about before we before we wrap up the show? Um, for my United, um, Valencia hasn't really taken advantage of my use not so great start. Not bad. They were four points and they lost to Juventus, but it was at Old Trafford. And if they lose at Juventus and Valencia wins their second leg game against Young Boys, then it could turn things around. So they could be up I, to five points. Um, yes. will be on four. I think when you have to find a way to minimum get a draw so that regardless of what happens in the other game, they are still equal on point in case Valencia wins. But if not, if Valencia should win and Man you lose again, they mm. go to third position. Indeed. And the second leg against Valencia becomes a very, very important match. Exactly. I think they they need to try to avoid that situation and at least try and get a draw in Italy. As for PSG, such situation for them. I took was brought in mainly for the Champions League. Indeed. It will be a complete disaster if they yeah. if they dropped out at the group stages and um, for the other guys Tottenham failed to keep their league against uh, PSV yeah. and now they too as well they are in a bit of trouble and I think uh, Barcelona is on 9 points and Inter Milan is on 6 points and Tottenham is on just 1 point so uh, they don't have any choice but to get three points against PSV in the second leg. And keep getting three points. And keep getting <laughs> the three points. And hope that they can maybe usurp enter the second position. Well, some people are looking good. Some people are looking good. Manchester City, after their first shaky start, starting to look good. Ah, it will always be fun. It's the Champions League. It's the height of football. So, really looking forward to the different games. Mm. Indeed. 
And so on that note, we bring this high of the pitch to a close. Um, hopefully, we are going. To, we can be a bit more regular going forward. Uh, thank you, Shola, for coming on the show. Thank you very much. And I wish you all a great midweek of football. Take care. Adios.